Greetings, greetings, greetings. I'm so, 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 so very excited about the winds of change in the literary and now film world. Or, um, yeah. <sighs> Authors like Nnedi Okorafor and Tomi Adeyemi, I hope I'm saying her name right, are bringing their books to life on screen. They've gotten deals with different um, distributors, I guess, producers, film houses. I don't know what they're called in that world, but I'm just excited because they are bringing uh, their pages to life. And in reading books like uh, Akata Witch and Children of Blood and Bone, oh my gosh. And knowing that they're going to participate in the film adaptations that we see, I'm so excited. But in order to really understand, well, I won't ever thoroughly understand because I was not born in Nigeria or on the continent at all, and I wasn't raised with the indigenous practices that I am reading about, but having insight, a bit of insight into the the world of African spirituality does help with the understanding of books like Who Fears Death and Akata Witch and Children of Blood and Bone and um, my favorite, my favorite, I do have a favorite and that's the Book of Phoenix because it makes so much sense when you have just like a little peek into um, indigenous culture, tradition, spirituality, because it's, it's, it's all one. It's not separate. It's literally a way of life. Oh my gosh. So in reading books like James Weeks, Across the King's River and Let the Circle Be Unbroken by Maremba Ani, uh, and other things that I'm doing in my life, because African spirituality, culture, traditions are not just on paper. Matter of fact, they're mostly oral. And so I've been blessed to connect with people who are showing me and teaching me and growing me and healing me. And I'm participating, so uh, things are good. Um, All of that being said, this next read gives uh, insight into what literally growing up in that world means for this particular author and what being exposed to the Western world means and the mixture of the two. This next book is, oh, it took me there. It took me there. Because as an African-American, I have my ideas. But this author 
was born on the continent in West Africa among the Dagara people. And then he was snatched away from it when he was four years old by Jesuit priests, missionaries. And he's so authentic with his writing. He's he's just so honest. He doesn't favor one or the other. He just tells it as it is in his from his perspective, but you can feel the authenticity of his words. Oh my gosh. And it helps not to make the continent some type of utopia idea. It is what it is. Oh my gosh. This this read is, is very interesting, but it helps give a certain understanding, the understanding I needed to go forward in my exploration of my people, the people I was snatched from, but not literally in this physical life, but you get what I'm saying, right? So my next read is going to be Malidoma Somes of Water and the Spirit. Today's read, Chapter One of Water and the Spirit, written by Malidoma Somme, slowly becoming. The story I am going to tell comes from a place deep inside of myself, a place that perceives all that I have irremediably lost and perhaps what gain there is behind the loss. If some people forget their past as a way to survive, other people remember it for the same reason. When cultures with contradictory versions of reality collide, children are often the casualties of that contact. So, like many dark children of the African continent, my childhood was short, far too short to be called a childhood. This is perhaps why it has stuck so vividly in my memory. Exile creates the ideal conditions for an inventory of the warehouse of one's past. When I was little, two people in my family fascinated me, my mother and my grandfather. I loved my mother because she loved me, although she would sometimes storm at me for my insatiable greed. She provided me with anything I asked for. Every now and then when she went to the village market to sell her grains, I knew she would come back home with some treats such as cakes, European bread, or even a worn-out garment. Every market day, then, was a new day for me, a day of excitement and expectation. Until I was three years old, my mother would carry me and tie me onto her back whenever she went in search of wood or grain or simply to farm. I loved to be knitted so closely to her, to watch her collect wood and carry it home on her head singing. She loved music and perceived nature as a song. <laughs> 
While walking any great distance, she always sang to me. The story was always chosen to match the length of the journey and was usually about some unfortunate girl or woman, usually an orphan. One I remember in particular was about a girl named Kula, whose mother died and left her with a little sister, Naab, to take to their aunt. Kula asked for all her slave to do the packing while she dressed herself as a queen, putting on gold necklaces, gold rings, and beads for the journey. Or, who was more practical than her unmindful mistress, packed a lot of water along with her personal things. On the road, Naab, the little sister that Kula carried on her back, felt thirsty and asked for water. The only person who had brought any water was Wo'or, but she wasn't about about to give it away for free. In payment, she asked for a gold ring. The day was terribly hot and dusty, and a little while later, Naab cried again for water. Kula again begged Wo'or, this time trading her gold earrings for the water. This went on and on until the slave girl was dressed up like a queen, and Kula stripped of her finery, looked like a slave. The next time Naab cried out for water, her sister had nothing left to trade. Wo'o suggested that she herself carry the child. Thus, the three girls arrived at the house of the aunt, who welcomed them, mistaking the slave girl for her niece and the niece for the slave girl, and thus their identities were reversed. treated well and kept in the warm comfort of home while the niece was treated as a slave and sent out to the farm to guard the crops against wild creatures. As the days went on, the queen becomes slave, saying the story of her life to scare the birds and animals away from the crops. A singing human voice in the middle of a farm always keeps the intruder away. As Kula cried out her plight, her tremulous melody touched the hearts of the winged and the four-legged creatures alike. One day, the Kondombili, the spirits who live in the underworld, were passing by and heard Kula's song. They stopped and listened carefully as her mournful voice rose and fell amid the tall end of rainy season grass. When she stopped to catch her breath, the Kondombili approached her and asked her to sing her song again. After she had finished, they asked, Is this story true? And she said, I only sing what I know. The Kondombili said, Go home, little lady, your troubles are over. Your aunt's eyes will be opened and she will know who you are. Kula went home and as the Kondombili had promised, the aunt recognized her at once as her true niece, she was given her beautiful clothes and jewels back and placed in the bedroom where Wo'oa the usurper had been sleeping. But Kula had learned true humility during her time as a slave and she did not wish to switch from such hardship to such immense luxury and comfort. 
She asked if she could continue to stay in the slave girl's room and be given the leftovers from the rich folks' meals. Dumbfounded, sorry, and confused, her aunt could only keep apologizing for having treated her so badly. Meanwhile, the real slave girl was sent out to the farm to guard it against the creatures of the wild. She could not sing, so she sat and made raucous noises when birds landed on the crops. Along came a different group of condombili who had been told of the farm girl and her beautiful singing. They begged her for some music, saying, We heard that your voice brings tears to the heart. Please let us hear that song you sing every day. Unaware who she was speaking to, we all replied rudely, What are you talking about? I ain't got no song to sing to nobody. Then she barked harshly, thinking that would scare these beings away. To the sensitive ears of Kondombili, this sound was like the smell of vomit. Disgusted and puzzled, the Kondombili asked Wo'o once more for a real song. Answering their courtesy with rudeness, the girl rebuked them in the same way. Believing they had been deceived by the girl, the Kondombili grew so angry that they turned her to stone. I never liked the ending to my mother's stories. Someone always became something or someone else. When a story threatened to end before our journey did, she expertly extended it. I heard the story of Wo'o and Kula many times, but each time something different happened. Sometimes, my mother would depict Kula's life with greater misery, as if she guessed that I did not like the fact that the usurper was turned to stone and therefore wanted to make a better case for her punishment. One time, she had the little queen eat not just the crumbs from the table, but had her share her meals with a dog. But, Mom, I protested, she didn't do that the other day. She ate only the leftovers. Yes, answered my mother, but if she eats what the dog eats, then she can all the more enjoy returning to her queenhood, and you can enjoy watching the wicked slave die. For those who think that dogs eat dog food in Dagara land, let them know that dog food is human excrement. Ooh. Although her songs were sweet, my mother's tremulous voice made me wonder sometimes if she was not mourning something or someone. I was too young then to suspect that her life and her marriage were not as happy as I thought, and that her heart held hidden sadness. It felt good to be suspended behind her, but I did not like being unable to see where we were going. Being so small, I could not see over her shoulders, and mostly she would cover up my head with an extra piece of cloth hoping I would go to sleep. Consequently, the journeys to the savannah were less enjoyable than the journeys home. Once at the wood-gathering spot, however, she would set me free. I would then go wild, running all over the place as if to recuperate from the immobility of the trip. Sometimes, however, she would yell at me to come back to her or to show me certain things. This is one of the tricks mothers use to keep children within reach. Children learn by watching adults work and by doing the same things on a smaller scale. With the help of grown-ups, 
they obtain the range of skills they need to confront their own adult duties. Collecting wood is essentially the work of women, but it is also the work of boys. Bringing dry wood to your mother is a sign of love. I loved to pursue rats, snakes, rabbits, virtually anything that moved. Though most of the time she let me indulge my wild nature, my mother always seemed to call me when I was in the midst of a feverish chase. And at precisely the moment when my victim seemed most vulnerable. One day, something very odd happened. As I was running around madly, I stepped on a rabbit. It dashed out of its hiding place and a wild race ensued. Looking for a place to hide, the rabbit ran straight toward a small forested area in the bush. I rejoiced when I saw the rabbit run in that direction because I often picked the fruits there and knew every corner of that little bush. I ran faster and we almost arrived there at the same moment. I had to slow down to avoid crashing into a tree, but the little rabbit, having no such fear, disappeared into the bush like an arrow shot into a pot of butter. I followed with caution, trying to guess where the rabbit might be hiding. The tall grass put me at a disadvantage. I had to beat my way through while the little rabbit slipped along easily. When I turned over the first clump of grass, the rabbit was not there. I checked another part of the bush where I knew there was an animal nest. This nest was an earthen hole dug in a little hill its opening covered with grass and its inside filled with soft straw. I removed the grass and was ready to leap headlong into the miserable rabbit, onto the miserable rabbit, but I never completed the action. All my movements were suspended as if by an electric shock. Where I had thought there would be a rabbit, there was instead a tiny old man, as small as the rabbit itself. He sat on an almost invisible chair and held a minuscule can in his right hand. His head was covered with hair so white and so shiny that it seemed unnatural. His beard was long and white too, reaching almost to his chest and he wore a traditional Dagara mantle, also white. All around him there was a glow, a shiny rainbow ring like a round window or portal into another reality. Although his body filled most of that portal, I could still see that there was an immense world inside it. But what surprised me most was that the laws of nature in that world did not seem to operate like anything I had seen before. The little man's chair was sitting on a steep slope, yet he did not fall over backwards. I noticed that something like a thin wall sustained him. He was not leaning against the chair he was sitting on, but against that thin wall, even though he still appeared upright in the window. As my eyes moved from that wall and the world behind it back to the man, I saw that his thin legs were bare. His toes were so tiny I could barely see them. Petrified by something that was neither fear nor mirth, but felt like a tickling all over my body, I forgot to scream as the man said, I have been watching you for a long time, ever since your mother started bringing you here. Why do you want to hurt the rabbit, your little brother? 
What did he do to you, little one? His tiny mouth was barely moving as he spoke, and his voice was very thin. Confused, I tried to reply. I, I, I don't know. Then be friendly to him from now on. He too likes the freshness of this place. He too has a mother who cares for him. What would his mother say if you heard him? Now go, because your own mother is worried. While the little man was speaking, I spotted the rabbit, which had been hidden behind him in the magic circle all that time. It moved farther into that steep, marvelous place and then disappeared behind a tree. Meanwhile, I heard a cracking sound as if the earth itself were splitting open. No sooner had I heard this than the old man stood up, slung his chair over his shoulder, and walked into the opening as if he had commanded it. The earth closed up on him, leaving a gust of fresh breeze in his place. At the same moment, I heard my mother's faint voice calling me, Malidoma, please answer me. Where are you? Still caught in the intensity of the experience, I opened my mouth to answer, but no sound came out. She called again and again, and finally I was able to scream back at her. I could not see her, but I heard her give a yell and run toward me. When she reached me, she lifted me up in the air and ran out of the bush with me as quickly as she could. I have been looking for you since noon, she said, gasping for breath. It's almost dark. What have you been doing all this time? I saw a man in the bush and he said I should be friends with rabbits. What man? What rabbit? My mother said in a panicked voice. What are you talking about? Not waiting for an answer, she provided one herself. Oh, my poor child. Some witch must have taken his soul away. Please, spirits of nature, please help me get him home alive. She went on and on, making sounds that seemed like gibberish to me, but were the primal language with which she conjured the protecting spirits. When I was able to get her attention again, I said, The man is very small and very old, Mama. He lives there in the bush, but he just left. Oh, dear ancestors, my child has seen a condomble. What else can it be? Don't talk any more. Let's get out of here. I'll never take you out again. Saying this, she loaded me onto her back, tied me to her with a piece of cloth, and walked breathlessly to her basket now filled with heavy pieces of wood. She then lifted the whole thing onto her head and proceeded toward home. There was no singing or talking on that whole six-mile journey. As we neared the house, she finally spoke. You will not tell anyone about this, or I will never take you with me again. Do you hear me? Yes, I replied, and that was all she ever said about the matter. There was a reason for my mother's unwillingness to discuss this experience with me, or to have me discuss it with others. Did Dagara believe that contact with the other world is always deeply transformational? To successfully deal with it, one should be fully mature. Unfortunately, 
the other world does not discriminate between children and adults, seeing us all as fully grown souls. Mothers fear their children opening up to the other world too soon because when this happens, they lose them. A child who is, who is continually exposed to the other world will begin to remember his or her life mission too early. In such cases, a child must be initiated prematurely. Once initiated, the child is considered an adult and must change his or her relationship with the parents. My grandfather had been my confidant interlocutor, interlocutor for as long as I can remember. There is a close relationship between grandfathers and grandchildren. The first few years of a boy's life are usually spent not with his father, but with his grandfather. What the grandfather and grandson share together that the father cannot is their close proximity to the cosmos. The grandfather will soon return to where the grandson came from, so therefore the grandson is a bearer of news the grandfather wants. The grandfather will do anything to make the grandson communicate the news of the ancestor before the child forgets, as inevitably happens. My grandfather obtained this news through hypnosis, putting me to sleep in order to question me. It is not only to benefit the grandfather that this relationship with his grandson must exist. The grandfather must also transmit the news to the grandson using the protocol secret to grandfathers and grandsons. He must communicate to this new member of the community the hard tasks ahead on the bumpy road of existence. For the Dagara, every person is an incarnation, that is, a spirit who has taken on a body. So, our true nature is spiritual. This world is where one comes to carry out specific projects. A birth is there for the arrival of someone, usually an ancestor that somebody already knows who has important tasks to do here. The ancestors are the real school of the living. They are the keepers of the very wisdom the people need to live by the life energy of ancestors who have not yet been reborn is expressed in the life of nature in trees mountains rivers and still water grandfathers and grandmothers therefore are as close to an expression of ancestral energy and wisdom as the tribe can get consequently their interest in grandsons and granddaughters is natural. An individual who embodies a certain value would certainly be interested in anyone who came from the place when that value existed most purely. Elders become involved with a new life practically from the moment of conception because that unborn child has just come from the place they are going to. A few months before birth, when the grandchild is still a fetus, a ritual called a hearing is held. The pregnant mother, her brothers, the grandfather, and the officiating priest are the participants. The child's father is not present for the ritual, but merely prepares the space. Afterward, he is informed about what happened. During the ritual, the incoming soul takes the voice of the mother 
Some say the soul takes the whole body of the mother, which is why the mother falls into trance and does not remember anything afterward and answers every question the priest asks. The living must know who is being reborn, where the soul is from, why it chose to come here, and what gender it has chosen. Sometime, based on the life mission of the incoming soul, the living object to the choice of gender and suggest sometime based on the life mission of the incoming soul, the living object to the choice of gender and suggest that the opposite choice will better accommodate the role the unborn child has chosen for him or herself. Some souls ask that specific things be made ready before their arrival. Talismanic power objects, medicine bags, metal objects in the form of rings for the ankle or the wrist. They do not want to forget who they are and what they have come here to do. It is hard not to forget because life in this world is filled with many alluring distractions. The name of the newborn is based upon the results of these communications. A name is the life program of its bearer. A child's first few years are crucial. The grandfather must tell the grandson what the child said while still a fetus in his mother's womb. Then he must gradually help him build a connection with his father, who will help him with the hard challenges up ahead. My father used to complain that his life was calamitous because he never knew his grandfather, who disappeared before he was born. Had he known him, my father said, he would never have lost his first family, never spent his youth working in a gold mine or later embraced the Catholic religion with a fervor grander than the one that linked him to his ancestors. His stepbrothers, who knew their grandfather, did not have the kind of restlessness that plagued my father. The frustration of a grandfatherless male child has no cure. In the beginning, the intense intimacy between the grandson and the grandfather might create feelings of jealousy in the father. While a grandfather is alive, the grandchildren do not have much of anything to learn from their father until they reach their pre-adolescent age. And the father knows that. He knows that a conversation between a grandson and a grandfather is a conversation between brothers of the same knowledge group. To know is to be old. In that, the grandson is as old as the grandfather. Consequently, The father is too young to have a part in this relationship between wise men. I used to spend much of my days in the company of my grandfather. He was a man worn out by hard work, who at the age of 60 was virtually a child, weak and sick, yet with a mind still as alert as that of a man in the prime of youth. He also possessed incomparable wisdom stored over the course of half a century of sustained healing and medicine works. Grandfather was thin and tall. Since I had first known him, he always wore the same traditional bao-bao. It had been white when he first got it, but in order to avoid the cost of maintenance, he had changed the white color of the cloth into red 
using the juice of some roots that he alone knew the secret of. In use, 24 hours a day, the baobab was simultaneously his daily outfit, his pajamas, and his blanket. After more than a decade, it had turned into a remnant of himself, blackened by sweat and dirt. Though most of the baobab had fallen off under the weight of filth, it still hung firmly on his shoulders, its general architecture intact. Unlike modern Christianity, which links cleanliness to godliness, Zagara culture holds the opposite to be true. The more intense the involvement with the life of the spirit, the more holy and wise an individual is, the less attention is paid to outward beauty. Grandfather owned a walking stick carved with artistic artistic dexterity. Its wood also darkened from long usage. His movements were slow, and I found it easier to be around him than around the other kids who were older, stronger, and more agile than I was. So, every day, while everybody was at the farm, I was with Grandfather. ever told or even heard of in the tribe and at his age he looked as if storytelling were the only thing he could still do with success he utilized this talent very well since that was the only way he could gain attention each time I sat in his lap he took it as a request for a story and he would always begin by asking a question brother Malidoma do you know why the bat sits upside down no, why? Long, long time ago, and I mean long when I say long because that was when animals used to speak to men, and men to animals, and both to God. Then why don't animals speak to men anymore? They still do. Only we have forgotten how to comprehend them. What happened? Never mind. We're talking about bats and why they all sit upside down. Yes, I want to know why they do that. Well, see, there was a time when Brother Bat died and no one knew who he was. The town crier took his body to the crocodile, saying, The jaws of this damn thing look like they were borrowed from a crocodile. I thought he might be your relative or something. The crocodile said, It's true that this guy's got a mouth like mine, but I ain't got no brother with fur, let alone with wings. So... Next, the town crier took the dead bat to the head of the bird's tribe, and who's that? It's Mother Sila, you know, the bird that flies high and shoots herself down like an arrow when she goes to catch her dinner. Mother Sila said, This animal looks like it's got good wings and reasonable claws, but I never saw anyone in my family with so few feathers. And so, finally, the town crier gave up and threw the bat into a ditch. But when Papa Bat found found out about this, he was very angry. He rebelled against God and ordered the whole tribe never to look up to God again. Since then, bats never turned their faces upward. Grandfather, this is too sad. Tell me another one. Grandfather never had to be begged. He would tell you a story even without your asking, 
and the times you asked, he would keep on talking until you unasked him. <laughs> he also knew how to hypnotize you, to speak you to sleep when he needed to be left alone to do some important work. He never chased a child away from him. In fact, he always thought children were the most cooperative people on earth. One just needed to know how to use their generous services. A sleeping child is even more obedient than a child awake, and so he would often hypnotize one of us, then awaken us into a state where we would be dispatched to run errands for him. Any child seen silently looking for something who would not respond when you asked what are you looking for was a sleeping child on an errand for grandfather. He did not like to request the services of grown-ups because they would grumble and swear the whole time. He always said that the good in a service has little to do with the service itself but with the kind of heart one brings to the task. For him, an unwilling heart spoiled a service by infecting it with feelings of resentment and anger. Grandfather knew how to talk to the void, or rather to some unseen audience of spirits. Among the Dagara, the older you get, the more you begin to notice spirits and ancestors everywhere. When you hear a person speaking out loud alone, you don't talk to them because he or she may be discussing an important issue with a spirit or an ancestor. This rule applies more to holy elders than to adults in general. When I was with grandfather, I felt as if there were more people around than could be accounted for. When he knew I was not following his stories, he used to redirect his speech to these invisible beings. He never seemed bothered by my not listening. Grandfather's respect and love for children was universal in the tribe. To the Dagara, children are the most important members of society, the community's most precious treasures. We have a saying that it takes the whole tribe to raise a child. Homes have doorless entrances to allow children to go in and out wherever they want. And it is common for a mother to not see her child for days and nights because he or she is enjoying the care and love of other people. When the mother really needs to be with her child, she will go from home to home searching for it. When a child grows into an adolescent, he or she must be initiated into adulthood. A person who doesn't get initiated will remain an adolescent for the rest of their life and this is a frightening, dangerous, and unnatural situation. After initiation, the elders will pick a partner for the young person, someone who is selected for their ability to team up with you in the fulfillment of your life purpose. If one obediently walks their life path, they will become an elder somewhere in their late 40s or early 50s. Graduating to this new status, however, depends on one's good track record. A male elder is the head of his family. He has the power to bless and the power to withhold blessing. This ability comes to him from his ancestors, to whom he is very close, and he follows their wisdom in counseling his large family. Wealth, among the Dagara, is determined not by how many things you have, but 
by how many people you have around you. A person's happiness is directly linked to the amount of attention and love coming to him or her from other people. In this, the elder is the most blessed because he is in the most visible position to receive a lot of attention. The child is too because it belongs to the whole community. Some elders are chosen to sit on the village council. There, they participate in decision-making that affects the entire village. Women have their councils separate from the men because of their unique roles and responsibilities. Dagara culture is matrilineal. Everybody in the village carries the name of their mother. The family is feminine, The house where the family live is kept by a male. The male is in charge of the family security. The female is in charge of the continuity of life. She rules the kitchen, the granaries where food is stored, and the space where meals are taken. The male is in charge of the medicine shrine and of the family's connection with the ancestors. He brings the things that nourish the family like food. For a full 50 years, my grandfather had been the priest, the leader, and the counselor of a family of over 50 souls. Faced with domestic problems of all kinds, he had had to be tough. Judging from his physical appearance, muscles still protruding from tired biceps, square shoulders that looked as if they could still carry weight, big chest that seemed to hide massive lungs, one could see that he had been a robust young man, capable of sustaining long hours of demanding physical labor. Grandfather's greatest fame, however, came from his spiritual accomplishments. In the village, everyone knew him as the upside-down arrow shooter. He was one of the people in the tribe whose name made people shudder, for if he wished To destroy an enemy, he would retire to the quiet of his chambers, place an arrow upside down on his bow, and magically hit his target. The arrow would kill whomever or whatever he named, then rematerialize in his chamber, ready for more. The slightest scratch from such a weapon is mortal. Other tribes did not dare go into conflict with ours because they did not possess the secret of such deadly magic. Consequently, Grandfather rarely had a chance to demonstrate to the tribe his power in battle. The hour did have peacetime uses, however. Grandfather used it to protect our family farm from the nocturnal raids of wild beasts. Although he could no longer work the fields, Grandfather could still, in this manner, contribute to our food supply. He also displayed the upside-down arrow as a persuasive weapon to warn evildoers away from our family, the Birafor. Grandfather was no longer strong enough to walk the six miles between the house and the farm every day, and as far as I can recall, I never saw him go there because the people of my tribe practice slash and burn agriculture their fields are often very far away as people keep moving them around year after year to avoid exhausting the soil i was born too late to know grandfather as a more vigorous man 
When I was a child, he spent his days sitting in the same place in the central yard of the labyrinthine compound that housed our family group. Sometimes he was pensive, calmly and wisely dispatching legal matters without so much as raising his head or the tone of his voice. He had great knowledge of healing matters as well, without so much as glancing up from the pots that held the food and medicinal items he dispensed, he could tell young people who had physical problems which roots they should dig up and bring back to him in the evening for their cures. At night, when everyone else was asleep, Grandfather would watch over the farm and the compound from his room. Through the use of complex and magical security devices, his thoughts were constantly turned, constantly tuned in to the vibration of the farm, and he could always determine whether the fields were being raided by wild animals. The device he used to keep vigil consisted of a clay pot filled with virgin water, rainfall that had never touched the earth in its fall from the sky. He saw everything that happened throughout the farm by looking into this water. The precision of vision it afforded superseded the simplicity of this device. Grandfather's magical guardianship had enabled our family to always have enough food to eat. Two-thirds of the tribe did not share our surplus and could never put aside enough extra food to avoid the hardship of the hunger season which ran every year from July to September when stored food ran out. During this time, a mild famine visited many compounds. Children would stop singing and laughter would vanish from the houses at night. Every morning during that time, a long line of people stood at the door of the Birifor house, waiting for a calabash of grain. Distributing food to all these needy people was another of grandfather's tasks. So, every morning of those misty days of July and August, after he had given orders to the men and women of the family regarding their daily assignments, Grandfather would drag himself to the door of his room. There, he would take all the time he needed to be seated comfortably. I would wait calmly until he was settled. Then, I would sit on his bony lap, aided by a woman whose charge it was to measure up the proper amounts of millet to be distributed to each of the needy, Grandfather would dispatch his task until shortly after noontime when the heat became unbearable. Usually at that particular time of the day, I would fall asleep on his lap. He would wake me up later with a song that rang more like a cry. <laughs> Grandfather's voice was terrible. Then he would say, Brother Malidoma, my legs can't hold you any longer. Please allow them to breathe too. And, still half asleep, I would stand up and wait, wondering what had happened. After the rite of charity, one of the women brought food to Grandfather and me, and we ate together. Grandfather was very frugal. I remember him once explaining to my father that the weight of undigested food closed the body and the mind off from the ability to perceive the surrounding good and bad vibrations. He who ate too much increased his vulnerability. The good taste of food hid the danger it put the body into. Grandfather's philosophy was that food is a necessary evil. 
For this reason, the attitude toward food in our family was strange. One ate only when absolutely necessary. Grandfather could tell who was eating too much. For children under six, he encouraged food. For adults, he encouraged frugality. He used to rage at certain he used to rage at certain adolescents who, in his eyes, had no control of their appetite, saying, "Initiation will be a bitter experience when you come of age. Now is the time you must learn to control the drives of your body. Be alert and firm. Do not let the desire for physical satisfactions temper your warriorship. Remember, our ancestors are spirits. They feed only their minds and that is why they can do things beyond our comprehension. started speaking, he did not particularly care whether someone was listening or not. Speaking was a liberating exercise for him, an act of mental juggling. He would sometimes speak for hours, as if he had a big spirit audience around him. He would laugh, get angry and storm at invisible opponents, and then become quiet once more. When he had a real audience, as he did every evening at storytelling time, he would teach us all through his tales. He would speak until everyone fell asleep, then would rail at us, saying that sleep was a dangerous practice no different from that of eating too much food. For Grandfather, sleep was tribute we paid to the body far too often. He would often say that the body is merely the clothing of the soul and that it is not good to pay too much attention to it as if it were really us. Leave your body alone and it will align itself to the needs of the spirit you are. I loved grandfather's company and he loved having me next to him. He used to call me brother when he had something serious to tell me. Otherwise, he would call me by my tribal name, Malidoma. Tasked him, I asked him once why he called me brother, and he said, I call you brother because you are the reincarnation of Birifor, the elder son of my parents, and someone I used to love very much. Birifor's name is now carried by the entire family, and I will tell you why. Our father, Sabare, was a priest and a hunter. Before he went hunting, he used to give directions to Birifor about running the family, for Sabare would often disappear for months at a time. One day, he left and never returned. We waited for a year, then another year, and then we decided we should perform the funeral ritual, believing that our father must have been devoured by a wild beast. We planned to celebrate the rite for six days instead of three. The day before the funeral, Birifor and I were sitting on the roof of the house planning the final details when we saw our father coming toward us on a white horse. He was riding so fast, the feet of his mount barely touched the ground. 
mesmerized by the sudden vision, we waited in silence. The closer Savare got, the slower he rode until he stopped just under the big baobab tree in the yard. He dismounted, walked to the ladder, and climbed up to join us. He still wore the same clothes he had the day he left long ago. His bow still hung solid and real on his back, and his quiver and aimer were still there by his left elbow. He was clearly not dead. The only strange thing was his horse. We knew what a horse looked like, but we didn't have horses here in our region. We couldn't imagine where he had found one. While we were busy wondering about all these things, he arrived on the roof, produced a little bench out of nowhere, and sat down. Instantly, we all sat. We greeted each other, and I asked if he needed anything to wet his throat before we talked. No, he said. I have come to tell you to abandon your funeral plans, even though you will not see me again. No, that I am not dead, nor will I be for a long time. I have shifted to the other side of existence without going through the door of death, and I have done this for the benefit of the family. Do not, I repeat, do not perform any funeral rite, for my soul does not need rest. Whenever you need me, say these words. Grandfather never told me what the words were. And I will be there. As long as I can come to you, the family will never be in danger. There will always be prosperity, and you will have a world of medicine to share among you. Do not mourn my absence, for I am present among you without a body. Saying this, he stood up, and the bench he was sitting on vanished. Ignoring this magical occurrence, he walked straight toward the ladder without saying goodbye. We were so surprised we couldn't think of anything to do or say. Finally, I gathered all my strength and begged, but at least stay with us a day or two. You must tell us where you are and talk to the family about what happened. You know we are all anxious to hear about you. His reply came quickly. Nonsense. I have already told you what I came to tell you. No more should be said or the thread will be cut between you and me. Know only that where I exist is not on the earth, but in a universe of its own. I see you better from there than I ever could from here. Not a word, not a thought, not a single movement of my family escapes my attention. Now, be content and go about your duties. I have spoken. Saying this, he climbed down the ladder. We watched him get on his horse and start to ride away. After he had gone a very short distance, he and the horse began mounting up into the sky. Stunned, we watched them rise higher, then vanish. After that, we canceled the funeral. My brother Birifor was installed as priest and family leader, and an era of extreme material and magical prosperity began for us. We discovered the secret of the upside-down arrow the surveillance of remote areas, and many, many other medicine secrets you will learn later. You see, all these people who come to ask us for food because of what Savare has taught us, we have food and they don't. When you grow up, you'll learn about the secrets of the Birifor magic. Do you want to know them? 
Yes, I said. I want to know all about the upside-down arrow. I want to be a hunter like Savarain, fly in the sky. But, Grandfather, you have not told me why you call me brother yet. Yes, that's right, he replied. So, like I was saying, your other grandfather became the Baomale, the healer of the family. But he died in the war against the white man. What? They killed him? I inquired anxiously. No, brother, grandfather said mournfully. The upside-down arrow killed him. But it was not supposed to, I said, confused. Yes, brother, it was not supposed to do that. But someone made a serious mistake. I'll explain all that to you when you grow bigger. Now it's my turn to remind you that I have not answered your question yet, so let me do it now. Grandfather never tackled a question directly. He had the habit of introducing an answer by way of a whole bunch of stories that often placed the question being asked into a wider context. Your answer would arrive when you were least expecting it, nestled into the middle of a litany of fascinating narrations. Thus, one would go away with more than they came for, enriched with fantastic tales. With me, it was different. I would keep reminding Grandfather of my question, and at length, he would announce the answer before giving it to me so that I would know when my thirst was being quenched. After the death of my brother Birifor, and the ceremony of investiture that gave me the leadership of this family, Grandfather continued, my father, Sabare, came to me in spirit and told me that he was ordering Birifor to return to the family. Your sister had already been born then. A year later, your mother became pregnant again, and the baby inside her, whenever he would speak to me, would call me brother. I knew it was Birifor about to be born again, and that you would be a boy. So, I waited for your birth, and since that night, when you came to life at dawn near the river, between here and the house of that white devil on the hill, it has been my turn to call you brother. Now do you understand? No, I said. This was a lot to take into my young mind. If I am Birifor, why do you call me Malidoma? And if I am Malidoma after all, why do my father and other people like the Jesuit priest at the mission on the hill call me Patrice? Between Malidoma, brother, and Patrice, what is my true name? Hmm. None of them tells the whole story of who you are. However, there is one that almost does. The one your ancestors call you by, Malidoma. Do you know why this is so? No, grandfather. Tell me everything. I moved closer to him and hugged him. His clothes exhaled an unbearable smell and I pulled back sharply to avoid suffocation. Noticing this, Grandfather smiled briefly and regarded me gently. He laid his left hand on my forehead, took my right hand in his, and looked up at the sky for a long while before speaking. You do not like smell of a dirty old man's clothing. You love fragrance, the kind flowers have. Do you know that these sweet fragrances are born from horrible ones? Before it can liberate the sweet part of itself, the flower must rot. You see, I have to rot too, so that Birifor family can smell good. This is the order of things. 
But, Grandfather, you were talking about names and my birth. Now the flower story? Yes, the flower story is a little bit of a detour. I do not want to scramble your little growing mind. Now, what was I saying? Oh, yes, your true name is Malidoma. This is what your ancestors call you. The other names are things like tools that will get you out of trouble later. Patrice was given to you by the Jesuits shortly after your birth. Your parents, as you know, are friends with that white bearded priest up there on the hill. They seem to like his medicine and the god he serves, and that is why he comes here to visit so often. But let me tell you that a god who would send people away from their land must be drinking a very strong wine all the time. Long ago, that priest changed the names of your parents so they would come to his church more often. I do not know what your parents and the priest do up there, and I don't think I want to know either. Patrice was the name given to you by that priest up there on the hill. Use it whenever you are out of the tribal boundaries. Brother is the name I call you by. Nobody else has to claim it. Beerfor, well, nobody will ever call you again, call you that again. Malidoma is the name you will start hearing a lot when you become big. So be alert and prompt to answer. You never know what name another person will address you by. This is something you will have to live with. And that's enough for today. It was dark already and the farmers were returning from their day's work. My mother was the first to arrive, loaded down with a pack of dry wood that she balanced high on her head. To pass through the gate into our courtyard, she had almost to kneel double to avoid hitting the top and sides of the narrow doorway. My mother walked to the middle of the compound yard, tilted her head, and dropped the wood next to the central cooking pot. Relieved of her burden, she breathed deeply, wiped the blinding sweat from her eyes, and unfastened the wide, flat carrying basket from her head. My sister entered with her own small load of dry wood, nothing heavy since, since she was so small. She had no trouble passing the gate. She was only six years old, but her education had already begun. Every morning, she had to follow my mother to the farm and perform the duties of her sex on a smaller scale. She dropped her load carelessly and went into the kitchen in search of food. Shortly after, my father arrived, always the last to come home. He rode a bicycle that he had brought back from the Gold Coast, where he had spent three and a half years working in the gold mines of Takoradi and Sakunde. It was a huge English bicycle. He used to call it Gaule, after the lengthy branches of the ga tree which grows in the savannah. This bicycle was a blessing to my father. Thanks to it, he was always the first to arrive at the farm and the last to leave it. I used to watch him ride in, amazed at his dexterity. Balancing his slim form on the narrow iron seat, he rode so elegantly. It seemed there was a conspiracy between him and the bicycle. The machine had lost its brakes shortly after he arrived home from the Gold Coast. To stop it, he always had to jump off as it neared the gateway and run along with it for a while. Then he would park it against the wall of the compound. Father never left the farm until he knew everybody else had gone. 
once he was home, one of his responsibilities was to check the 17 living areas of the compound where the 17 families of the Birifor family group lived to make sure that everyone had returned safely. These family groups comprise our clan, our clan. The Dagara tribe consists of roughly 10 clans encompassing over half a million people covering a surface perhaps the size of Massachusetts. Our living area was the first one he checked. In it lived my parents, grandfather, my sister, and myself. It was the leading unit, bigger than the other spaces yet containing less than 10% of the people a living area that size ordinarily does. That was because half of the rooms in our area were spirit rooms, the sacred shrines of ancestors, and therefore accessible only to grandfather, my father, and other family heads. Typical family living units consist of two main areas, the men's quarter and the women's quarter, which face each other across the courtyard. In my village, the husband and wife do not share the same bed, and the children take turns sleeping in the lodging of both parents, in the lodgings of both parents. The building that housed my mother was called a Zangala. It was a large oval structure built with mud and wood, with extensions on the side that looked like extra large closets. This windowless, wigwam-like lodging was always dark. My mother and every other woman in the village preferred it that way. Built against the side of the Zangala were two little houses, one for poultry, the other for the goats and sheep. Across from the Zangala was my father's quarter, which was more modern in construction and about the size of a three-bedroom apartment. The floors and walls of all of these buildings were sealed with a kind of polish made from mud and liquefied cow dung to avoid the cracking common to mud houses. Between these two quarters was an enclosed courtyard, a large open space for evening and community gatherings. The only entrance to the compound was built into the wall of this courtyard, and next to it was a little hole that served as a door for the dogs and cats. On one side of the courtyard was a kitchen where people made fire and cooked food. The ceiling of this kitchen was black with soot and God knows what else. On the other side, to the left of my father's quarter, was a toilet and a shower room. Lastly, a set of small buildings joined together by a common back wall constituted the quarter of grandfather and his spirits. Nobody in the compound entered these small buildings without grandfather's presence, but at night one could hear him conversing with unknown beings. It was from these rooms that he surveyed the farm in the bush six miles away from home. Grandfather's space housed the pharmacy of the entire Birifor clan, an array of roots, daily collected, nightly prepared to face emergencies of all sorts. These little dwellings contained the prosperity, spiritual, material, and magical of the Birifor. Some of these roots were good for physical illness, but most of them were good for illness of the soul. These little buildings held the spiritual destiny of every member of the family. There, each one of us existed in the form of a stone, silent, docile, available. The stones represented the birth certificate of every person in the clan. This is where grandfather went 
to examine the physical and spiritual energy fields of the people under his care. Through his, through this magical means, Grandfather could check on each of us at his leisure. He took care of people outside the family, too. Strangers used to come now and then to seek medical help, and Grandfather would begin long ceremonial rites that took most of the day. Sometimes these strangers would bring chickens and, speaking breathlessly in an unintelligible, magical language, he would cut their throats and direct the spurting blood onto some statues representing different spirits, carved out of wood or built against the wall. He never tired of rituals. It took me many years to understand the reasons behind these visits and how Grandfather was able to help these strangers. After my father had finished his tour of the family units, he had to make sure that all the domestic animals were where they ought to be. Then he would close them in for the night. Finally, he would close the main gate and secure it from the inside by tying it to an old bicycle pedal fastened to the wall. This lock was one of my father's inventions since his return from the Gold Coast. Because my father was such a quiet and rather gloomy man, it was hard to be around him. Grandfather explained to me that this inner conflict had intensified since my father had become a follower of the priest on the hill. His unfocused and taciturn air was the result of the many trips he had made outside the limits of the Dagara tribe early in his youth. A youth who leaves the village shortly after initiation is vulnerable. He runs the risk of never dying properly, Grandfather always said. My father started traveling when he was 15 and never stopped until he was 30. These conversations between me and my grandfather may sound very adult, but it is not uncommon for grandchildren to learn about their fathers and about everybody else from their grandfathers. Grandfather was always very open toward me, so open that in retrospect it sometimes seems that he even forgot that the life of the person he was constantly analyzing in my presence was that of my own father. Most of what he said about my father did not make sense until I was much older, but I remembered it because he repeated it so often. Grandfather always spoke to me as an equal perhaps because his belief that I was his brother implied, in some sense, that I already was an adult. Again, this is not an uncommon attitude among the Dagara. It is not unusual to hear someone exclaim in front of a newly born child, Oh, he looks so old. So, when I became older, I came to understand more about the nature of the emotional problems that contributed to my father's gloominess and absent-mindedness. His first marriage had occurred at the age of 20 after he returned from the Ivory Coast. There he had served as a soldier in the colonial army. From this first marriage, twin daughters were born. My father was supposed to perform the ritual that every person who becomes a father of twins must perform. It consists of filling up two clay pots with root juice and burying them at the entrance of the compound. These pots symbolize the link between this pair of humans and the spirits that invited them to come into the family. The original reason for this ritual, as with many others that the Dagara practice, 
has been lost in oblivion, but people always perform them because their fathers did before them. It is also a very real incentive, borne out by long experience, that those who do not perform these rituals most often meet with disaster. The purpose of ritual is to create harmony between the human world and the world of the gods, ancestors, and nature. My father's adherence to the new Christian faith made him doubt the validity of such rites. Grandfather had warned him whenever he could about the urgency and importance of the ceremony. But because grandfather was my father's father, he couldn't do the ceremony himself. Each time he would remind his son of his duty, my father would play deaf, neither refusing nor accepting the responsibility. The truth was that he did not want to offend the white priest, appearing like a pagan devil worshiper in his eyes. My father genuinely feared going to hell, as he confided to me much later on. The white priest had told him that the Almighty God would take good care of his newborn twins and that he could do it better than the ancestors. Wow. According to the priest, our ancestors had been condemned to eternal hell and were busy burning. They had no time to enjoy sacrifices. I wondered what kind of expression Grandfather wore when he discovered that his own son actually believed this nonsense. Elizabeth and Marguerite grew without a problem, father was convinced that the priest had been right. Even though grandfather continued to remind him of his duties toward his firstborn, nothing could shake his obstinacy. His faith in the Christian religion grew stronger every day. Finally, grandfather switched from simple warnings to threats father began to see himself as a martyr, like those of Uganda who, in the mid-1800s, preferred to die at the hands of their own quote-unquote pagan elders. Rather than deny their faith in God, the Catholic Church later canonized these black men as saints. Convinced that his own suffering at the hands of my grandfather meant free passage to heaven, my father endured it gladly. In the meantime, two other children were born to him. The Catholic priest poured water on them immediately and named them Daniel and Pascal. By this time, grandfather had become a lone observer. Because they were boys and it was his duty, he secretly gave them Dagara names. Meanwhile, the twin girls grew to the age of initiation. The missionary warned my father against such practices and father refused to allow the girls to become initiated. A terrible decision because it doomed them both to being stuck in adolescence for the rest of their lives, bereft of the secret adult knowledge that initiation would have given them. At this point, grandfather was tired of struggling with his stubborn son. 
His grandchildren had grown beyond his protection, and he could only watch helplessly as disaster struck faster than was possible to take action against. One morning, Elizabeth caught a mysterious illness that no one could diagnose. She died at noon before the missionary could give her extreme unction. During her funeral, Marguerite died while running wild with grief. The funeral intensified. The sudden death of Marguerite had affected father beyond repair. Her funeral, however, was brief. People knew what was going on. Twins don't die on the same day. The people in our family asked my father to perform a reconciliation rite, thinking it would delay further disaster until the twin ritual for the girls could be done posthumously. It must have been my father's fate to not listen. Instead, he prayed to the foreign god harder than ever, offering him his pain as a gift. In his confusion, he saw his tragedy as a test sent by the Lord to try his faith. He kept repeating the famous sentence from the Lord's prayer, Thy will be done. And the Lord's will was done. Beyond his expectations, Pascal, the eldest son, expired two weeks after the funeral of Elizabeth and Marguerite. Nobody knew what killed him. He had been playing with his friends and suddenly cried out loudly that he was dying. Julia, the unfortunate mother, died of sorrow during the funeral of her son. She was already too worn out by the shock of the death of her two daughters to endure any more pain. There remained only Daniel and my father. In my imagination, I picture my grandfather emitting sounds of immense sorrow and helplessness. The first time he told me this story, my father himself groaned with grief. My father was a stubborn man to have stood his ground through so much destruction. The missionaries could do nothing but counsel him to pray, and then to pray harder, attributing these calamities to the weakness of his faith in God. All during this time, my father told me, the ghosts of his wife and children haunted his dreams with the question, why did you do this to us? After a few days of living in terror of these ghostly visitations, father went up to the hill to seek the interventions of the priest. He returned home with a terribly empty look, as if his soul had already gone out of his body. The Jesuits had given him the same worn-out counsel, keep praying, ruined by pain, eroded by continuous hopeless effort, he discontinued all social activities and voluntarily ostracized himself for months. The only time he would leave his quarter was to check that the only survivor of the Holocaust was still alive. Daniel didn't care. Who would? His soul was gone. No one could save him from the danger his father had exposed him to, and he was old enough to understand this. He awaited helplessly for death. His anger against his own father for the boundless losses he had endured barely hidden. Daniel died many years later. Daniel died many years later while I was away at the mission school. Perhaps my father could not stand all of this, for after a few months he disappeared. Consumed by restlessness, he suddenly fell in love with adventure once again. He went to the Gold Coast 
first in the town Takarati, then to Sakunde, where he hoped a change of scene could help him rid himself of the pain that had taken hold of his body and soul since the death of his children. He went to work, mining gold for the white man he had sacrificed his children to. Three years later, he returned from the Gold Coast, somewhat healed emotionally, but seriously ill physically. His face was emaciated like an old man's, and his swollen chest grew larger with every breath. His eyes were bloodshot, and he looked ghastly as if he had seen a ghost. He moved like a drunken man, zigzagging randomly. His legs looked more like sticks than limbs, and they struck against each other when he tried to walk. Grandfather tried to tell my father why he was sick, reminding him yet again of his duty toward his children, living and dead. But, as if accursed, my father always answered in the same way, saying he would think about it. My father was proud of the English bicycle he had successfully smuggled into the tribe. He paid more attention to it than to his health, which was deteriorating more every day. He even decided to get married again. I have always wondered on what grounds my mother married someone so ill. Was it because of the English bicycle or because the presence of grandfather as head of our family represented hope to her that everything could be put right again? Meanwhile, father had returned to his religious activities with the white priests as if nothing had happened. But everyone knew that the ancestors never forget. go downhill for him until he was incapable of even moving around. He spent his days sleeping and his nights groaning with the pain in his chest, his belly, and his back. Finally, grandfather had to warn him that he had only a few days left to live unless he performed his duties. Panic-stricken at the idea of dying at a time when he had just married, my father ordered the ceremony of the twins to be performed. Two clay pots were brought and filled with water from the underworld. This water was kept on a special shrine at the entrance of my mother's room. Then my father ceremonially sprinkled ash on the ground around the compound to keep malintentioned spirits away from the house. Then the ritual proper began. It lasted a whole day. What was normally a simple gesture toward the spirit had now become painfully elaborate because of my father's constant postponements. It was not long after this event that my father began to feel better. His health was improving almost visibly. At the end of the first week, he had recovered his ability to move around and by the end of the following week, he decided he was strong enough to return to the farm. His pain had almost entirely disappeared. He developed a better attitude, perhaps because he realized how much death is contained in the way of the white man and his spirituality. He began to hear the ancestors once again. My father still attended Sunday masses and still maintained friendship with the white bearded priest on the hill who misled him, but he also listened more carefully to grandfather now. My sister was born after all this 
tragedy and my father performed the proper ceremonies. The happy event revived him and my sister benefited from the joy he took in her. Yet she too was brought to the hill to be baptized. I was born three years after my sister, shortly after the harvest festival. It was dawn and very cold. My birth took place in the open air halfway between the family house and the white man's hospital. I still wonder what would have happened if I had been born in that modern sterilized place. My fate surely would have been different. I like to think that perhaps I knew this in the womb and decided to take matters into my own hands by insisting on being born in nature. Was this the reason why, 20 years later, I was able to find my way back home? And I often wonder if coming into this world between the village and the white man's compound has something to do with the feeling I have of being sandwiched between worlds. Like my sister, I was baptized at the Mission Hill and given the name Patrice, but grandfather registered me in the family ledger as Malidoma. He who would be friends with this stranger slash enemy. He knew that the bulk of my life was going to be lived outside of the tribe. And that meant countless challenges, all aimed at securing friends. His duty toward me consisted of delivering this bad news to me before he died. Grandfather had also named me Malidoma for reasons pertaining to ancestral law, because he was the guardian of the house, the link between the dead and the living, he expected his grandson to be recognized by the ancestors. As the first male of my family, my responsibilities had already been predetermined. The first male must be prepared to take charge of the family shrine when his father, the current priest, dies. I found out later that my education had somewhat broken that tradition because, after all, my fate would be to respond to the challenge of being swallowed up by the white man's world.